Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. A smashed icicle, the absence of dew, or maybe a dry patch of road that should be wet. All seemingly bystanders in an active crime scene. But to forensic meteorologists, these are powerful clues that can help solve the mystery. Dr. Elizabeth Austin, a forensic meteorologist who has worked on countless cases, joins us to discuss this unusual meteorological profession and how she will be appearing in a new show this fall on the Weather Channel called Storm of Suspicion. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So I want to start off with Storm of Suspicion. We're going to talk a little bit more about it throughout the podcast today, but just give us a little teaser of what it's about before we find out about forensic meteorology. Well, it's a series of eight episodes, and each episode focuses on one crime. And so they get to go very in-depth with the, with what happened with the weather, eyewitnesses, uh, they interview past family members, past um, law enforcement agents that worked on the cases. So it, it's really nice because one gets to look quite in depth at each case. So this is essentially a CSI meets the weather channel. <laughs> it is actually. <laughs> so it's going to be really interesting. So we look forward to that. Debuts uh, October 7th and 8 p.m. on the weather channel, by the way. So make sure you check on that. I want to kind of give uh, Dr. Austin her due before I talk to her. I just want to give you some of her credentials. She's a world-renowned atmospheric physicist and founder and president of Weather Extreme Limited. She is one of the foremost experts in the world on weather and extreme weather, uh, has been an expert witness on many cases, 1,500 or so. Uh, her clients include NASA, uh, Federal Express, Air France, Rockwell. She knows what she's doing, in other words. And I first met her at the American Meteorological Society meeting. She's been a leader in the field of uh, certified consulting meteorology within our field as well. So with that introduction, and we'll get into more of your background, tell the listeners about what forensic meteorology is. Well, forensic meteorology technically means uh, using the weather for litigation purposes. But it's also used a little more generically for just reconstructing weather to figure out what happened in past events, even if it's just not for lit litigation, but let's say for insurance companies, determining whether they pay out or not, and that sort of thing. It, has that essentially always what you've done as a meteorologist or an atmospheric physicist? Have you always really been on the forensic side? Uh, actually, the forensics is just a portion of what I okay. do. Um, we also, we meaning our, our small company, uh, we're 12 people now, so we are growing, but sure. um, specialized forecasting for different projects and um, some emergency management risk assessment type work too. Yeah, one of those projects, I, this is a good opportunity to talk about it because it's really neat to me. It's called the Airbus, Airbus Parallel 2 project, and I may be pronouncing that wrong, but you're the chief scientist and meteorologist for this groundbreaking and record-breaking project. Tell us about that. Yeah, this is a great project. Um, we're in phase two of phase three. Um, phase one uh, was the Parallel 1 where we had a manned glider 
it was a modified off-the-shelf glider, no engine, two pilots, and we soar in stratospheric mountain waves. And the ultimate goal is 100,000 feet. Wow. Yes. So now we're in phase two. Phase one, Steve Fawcett, uh, the adventurer, um, was the one who funded most of that project, along with NASA. And NASA was the one who brought me in originally back in the mid to later 90s. And uh, this man named Einar Anavoldsen is the one who got this idea. He was at the DLR in Germany, and he saw kind of a false color LIDAR of a stratospheric wave up at 80-something thousand feet and saw that and thought, hmm, he's an ex-NASA test pilot. I think I can soar in that if that – and uh, so he started talking to uh, Dr. Wolfgang Ringer of the DLR – and uh, kind of put this into motion. And so NASA brought me on saying, is this guy nuts or can this be done? So we spent about a year researching it and said, no, he's not. Um, these waves exist. and uh, But you do need a unique combination of you need the polar night jet associated with the polar vortex. So we need to be. Oh, wait, she just said polar vortex. <laughs> I did. <laughs> the polar vortex. It's coming to get us with all of the cold. So I think it's interesting because as, as scientists, I'm, I'm being uh, I'm kidding here a bit, but the polar vortex is always there, always has been there, and you can see that it's really a stratospheric phenomena that uh, that scientists have known about for some time, but yeah, please continue. Yes, we have known about it for some time. It's just become kind of a hot... A buzzword. Yes, it That's has. right. It's not an Arctic hurricane, by the way, or Arctic <laughs> no. tornado or anything like that. So we have to be near the poles in the respective wintertime, but now we're in phase two, and Airbus is now the title sponsor, and we've built our own carbon fiber, beautiful glider. And um, so the Perland 2, and it's the project is called Perland because Perland is Icelandic for pearl, and so it's representative of the mother of pearl clouds. Ah, I see. Yeah. The, 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 the Polar nacreous clouds exactly. or something to that effect. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Now, that's really an interesting project. It just really illustrates sort of the, you heard some of the people she's working with and sort of the groundbreaking nature of this project. Uh, and I think you're preparing a man glider to a record-breaking altitude of 90,000 feet in Argentina. Has that happened? or this? We're, we actually just packed up the glider yesterday to bring it home. And this season, we just reached seven, a little over 76. 6,000 pressure altitude. Okay. And then uh, we have to go through some procedures to find out the exact pressure altitude and GPS altitude with the instruments when we get back. GPS altitude will be a little over 74,000 feet, but pressure right. a little over 76,000. They can see the curvature of the earth. We have a tail cam video, beautiful video from the uh, flight. Let me stop you again because she said you can see the curvature of the earth because we certainly know that there's a flat earth contention out there as well and so um, here's someone that can see it with their eyes or at least with their instrumentation so um, I want to kind of circle back around now to the certified consulting meteorology and forensic meteorology is this something that any meteorologist or anyone aspiring to be a meteorologist can do are there any special certifications that you recommend well depending upon uh, what one wants to do going to broadcast meteorology, there's broadcast certification. Um, There is the certified consulting meteorologist. And actually, you don't have to work in the private sector to get your CCM through the American Meteorological Society. Um, If you think about it, people who work for the Weather Service, they are serving the public. And so we're getting more and more uh, the CCMs as a we, um, people applying from the, the Weather Service. 
And so it's quite interesting. Yeah, so, and, I, and I was going to ask you that because most people that get these CCMs, these Certified Consulting Meteorology uh, designations, if you will, are they primarily people working in their own private practices or within their small companies? But it sounds like you're saying it span, runs the gamut. It does. From large companies to just one a single person company, yeah. consulting company, to a lot of the large companies now are starting to realize the benefit of the CCM certification. Yeah, absolutely. You have a really interesting career. How did you get into the field or what got you sparked your interest in, in atmospheric sciences and meteorology? Uh, when I was a freshman at UCLA, I opened up the catalog and I was reading the course descriptions. I knew I liked science, but I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do. And I started reading the description of the classes, you know, cloud physics, mountain meteorology, on and on. I thought, oh my gosh, I just never realized this existed. So I just packed up my backpack, walked over to the department, introduced myself. And, and actually it was fortuitous because that was the very first year that UCLA had an undergraduate atmospheric science department. They'd always had a graduate department. Right. And so I just started in as a freshman and never looked back. Now you mentioned before we started the podcast, Dr. Roger Wakamoto, who's the current <laughs> president of the American Meteorological Society, AMS for those that aren't familiar, it's the lar largest professional society in our particular field here in the United States. And Roger's the president. But before that, and I think he's actually back there now. He was a professor at UCLA. And uh, tell us about Roger Wakamoto. Did you have any classes with him? Uh, that's interesting uh, yeah. you say that. It was his very first year of teaching at UCLA and my very first year as a student. And so we've known each other for a long, long time. Yeah. And uh, it, he was he was fantastic. Yes. I, I, I just shout out to Dr. Wakamoto if he's out there listening. Uh, also one of my favorite people and colleagues. And it's an honor to have him serving as president of our, our professional society. Uh, I want to kind of circle back a little bit to the general no nature of forensic meteorology. Uh, what do you find in your years of experience and years of cases? What's the hardest part about it? The hardest part is taking once I've gone through a case and spent months researching the case, we run WARF sometimes, we do a lot of highly technical Now, you mentioned WARF. Talk to the, the listeners about what oh, you yes. mean when you say that. Uh, the Weather Research and Forecasting System model. Yes. So we will take analysis data and then determine which model was matching the conditions the best on that date in question or days in question. Right. And then we will run this high-resolution model in addition to gathering all of the weather data and analyzing the weather data or climatological data, whatever the case may be. Sure. Um, but then taking it, breaking it down into digestible chunks for a judge or a jury. And whether it's a judge or a jury, they aren't, many of them aren't weather geeks, although you will get a few jurors that will be, and which is great. Uh, but they are used to seeing things like NEXRAD and, and uh, satellite, satellite imagery. Sure. Yeah, so they expect to see that. They don't want you to just hold up paper charts. You have to have uh, full animations and graphics. But the animations and graphics have to be accurate scientifically. And then... I have to be able to, or one, whomever is the one testifying, have to, to be able to tell the jury what, what they're seeing and explain it to them in, in a way that they can understand it. Right. Now, you've, and I think the term forensic sort of is anchored in the legal jargon, if you will, but are there other ways or other applications of what you do beyond sort of the legal field, if you will? Yes. You know, a lot of times it'll be just with claims um, for hailstorms or let's say 
300 houses are claiming hail damage. Well, they'll need to determine, well, do all 300 really require a new roof or not? And so it won't go to litigation, but the insurance company will contact a forensic meteorologist to look at what happened. You know, it's interesting because here in the Atlanta area, few months ago, we had a really bad hailstorm here. I, in fact, I got some video of my my wife and I driving home from dinner and um, golf ball and peat size hail pounding our car. And the next day, there were these hail companies or these roofing companies in our neighborhood, just like that. I mean, so, you know, I was telling my wife, I said, there has to be some kind of meteorological service or consulting meteorologist that provides these folks with sort of the hail swath because it's a really narrow area, but they seem to be right in it. And so am I right in that? You are. You are. And now people are onto it a little bit more. So now people really watch these things. And uh, yes, so they'll send people out immediately. Yeah. Is that what From your experience, is there a particular country, a part of the country that deals with these sort of hail claims more? I'm imagining it's out in the sort of intermountain region or the western region? It actually, uh, we've had them all across oh, the United States. Really? But really, the intermountain west, um, but we've had plenty of them in the southeast. Yeah, yeah, we've we've seen quite a bit of that as well. Uh, one of the things I wanted to sort of ask you about is, is there a month that hurts or helps more when looking for clues when you're talking about your or dealing with some of the cases? Uh, is there a type of year that sort of is more optimal? No, not really. actually, no, yeah. because it just depends upon the type, whether, you know, no, it doesn't. So no. it's, okay. no, I, I was curious about that because in some, some aspects of our field, there is a seasonality to it, to whether you're seeing more, you know, fog cases and interstate um, pileups or versus rain case. Now, as we're taping this, we're coming out of Hurricane Florence, uh, yes. which is one of the more devastating natural disasters that we've seen in recent decade. Um, would there be any reasons why someone in, uh, that, that does what you do would be called into to service after something like a Florence or a Harvey? Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. We actually at Weather Extreme have two hurricane experts just because I am not a hurricane expert. And that's another thing about the field is one does need to focus in their area of specialty. And so um, this will bring a lot of business to forensic meteorologists around the country and the world. Yeah. And that's another thing is um, a lot of the cases that I work are not in the United States. They so are, it's a, you do, this is a global definitely. issue. Definitely. Yes. Here. And so that's why when you ask, is there a seasonality to it? Really, globally, there, there's not. Right. Because you're depending on where you are in the globe. That's it's right. It's a completely different season. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Thank you for joining us on Weather Geeks. I'm talking with Dr. Elizabeth Austin. Uh, she's a forensic meteorologist and also uh, her company is Weather Extreme Limited. Uh, she's a world-renowned atmospheric physicist and just a fascinating uh, colleague, and I'm happy to have her on the show today. I want to talk now about something that I suspect might be a little bit different job for you. You're going to be involved in a new show on the Weather Channel called Storm of Suspicion. 
The Crime Riddle series premiere, by the way, is Sunday, October 7th at 8 o'clock. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. The DVR set. <laughs> What's the show about and how did you get involved? Well, it's great. It's um, is Each show focuses on an, one crime. Yeah. And so we get to go very in-depth about that crime and how weather and the atmosphere may or may not have played a role. And not just actually in the crime or the commission of the crime itself, but in terms of even the solving of the crime, when the investigators are on scene afterward, just trying to collect evidence and let's say it's a snowstorm or windy or they can't see correctly or, you know, trying to figure out what happened at the crime scene is not always that easy. Are, are, they, are these real cases or are they, are they sort of based on real cases? Oh, no, they're all real. They are real. They're all real. So uh, can you give us any teasers about any particular case without giving away the plots or are, are you in barcode at this oh, point? Oh, no, no. I, uh, they're, uh, actually, um, some of the cases are very high profile cases in terms of um, murders that have occurred. Um, well, there was the, the lady with the hurricane down in um, Texas who was, it turns out, murdered by her ex-husband. Yeah. So that's one of them. Right. So, so yeah, this is going to be a fascinating show, and I think it really illustrates the intersection between real-world challenges and problems and, and meteorology. So, yes. yeah. So how did, how did it come about that you were approached to, to do the show? Um, someone here at the Weather Channel had heard about me and mm-hmm. just gave me a call. Right, and sort of kind of flowed from that. People are always curious about those types of things. People say, how did you get involved in Weather Geeks? And I was like, well, uh, the year after AMS president, someone <laughs> gave me a call and said, hey, let's have lunch. So those, it's always interesting how these things sort of organically emerge. How often is weather, based on your experience, the deciding factor in a case? Well, that's that's an interesting question because um, not as often as one would think because most cases are like real life. It's a combination of events and and things that have occurred. But I would say about 10% the weather is it. That's it. The one single soul deciding factor. That's not trivial, though. No, it's not. That's a significant number. Yes. I mean, and why do you think people forget that, you know, weather or perhaps in these situations, in these cases, they're frankly not even thinking about it. But why do you think people forget that weather can kind of leave a fingerprint or some DNA on the case? Well, I think, well, you know, that's interesting. I think they cannot fathom all the various ways that weather can can play a role. They just there's just no way between, you know, footprints, you know, whether it's snow or dirt or mud or handprints, um, if you're sweaty, um, that sort of thing. Um, but so, how, wait, yes, I, I think I know the answer to this. But I want for the listeners. You mentioned sweatiness and handprints. Talk us through how meteorology comes into play there. Well, with handprints, let's say um, they may or may not last. It's, and so, let's say one touches the hood of a car. All right, your handprint is there. Well, then all of a sudden, if the car is sitting outside and we have flooding that occurs or something like that, if the car is underwater for a while, then the handprint may not survive. Whereas if there's a blood stain on the inside of the car, then that would survive. So a lot of these cases depend upon various sources of evidence that hopefully survive if the elements I see. So. Has there been a case in your experience or that you're aware of, even if you weren't involved in the case, where weather actually or weather information overturned the verdict or was significant in the verdict in that regard? 
in overturning yeah, it. Yeah, in overturning it, yes. Um, not specifically, but I'm sure I'm sure it's played a role. Yeah. I'm sure. And and like you mentioned also, I'm sure there are cases where weather actually erases or eradicates evidence as well. It does. And actually we have one case on storm of suspicion where they used the weather in order to sh- prove that the guy was was guilty, yeah, but so, I don't want to give it away. Yeah, we don't want to give away too much here. you got to tune in October 7th and 8 p.m. on the Weather Channel. I mean, I, I, I'm really looking forward to this. And ironically, sometimes my daughter, who uh, I often have, a, she's uh, 14, I have a hard time getting her sort of excited about my field the way that I am, but she loves uh, investigation uh, shows. So I have a feeling this might be the first time I can get her to sit down and watch a show with me. She, <laughs> she loves this type of thing as well. Um, one thing I wanted to sort of ask you from your own personal experience is if there is a particular case that stands out to you, uh, things that you've involved in, is there something that just when when someone asks you about your career, that case comes to mind? Well, there are many. There are many. <laughs> um, <laughs> the ones that are the most disturbing are cases that involve children. Ooh, yeah. um, however, uh, there was a double murder death penalty case that I testified in. That one always stands out, and that had to do with lighting conditions due, due to an eyewitness um, account. And, um, you know, what's interesting is sometimes weather can play just a side role. There was a man who tried to uh, bomb the IRS building oh, wow. in Reno, Nevada, and so I testified in federal court at that case. And what's interesting is I testified because there was another eyewitness, um, and it had to do about the the day he bought the bomb-making materials and whether it was raining or not. Hmm. So, I mean, it's just so why, interesting. Why would that have mattered? I know, yeah. I know. But it had to do with whether or not he okay. was the one who, who oh, made see. the bomb. And yes. So it's interesting. Sometimes it's just a side role, and other times it's an extremely critical role or the the critical um, factor. Yeah. Yes. Well, I, I want to kind of circle back to you, you mentioning that case with the lighting conditions. I mean, how would how would you approach that as a meteorologist or an atmospheric scientist consultant? I mean, are you looking at things like where the sun angles are or yes. the time of sunset? Uh, exactly. Yeah. And in this case, it was uh, the sun was not out. Yeah. But um, one needs to calculate the lighting conditions, whether it was cloudy or not. Um, and this happened to be out west, so terrain played a role. So um, I had to go to the scene and make calculations. And so, but the conditions can change because whether a light was on or not, that sort of thing. I see. Uh, and sometimes during the investigation, um, I'm not privy to all of the information. Then it turns out that when you've testified, that there's maybe some other information that you know just wasn't aware of. But one just testifies to the facts. When, when when this happens and your services are required, um, I think I, I have a little experience with this, but you know, I get calls every now and then or emails, but I usually defer them to my colleague, uh, Pam Knox, who actually is a CCM yes. and she's at the University of Georgia. But typically, how does someone come about sort of asking for your services or seeking your services? Uh, is it an attorney or is it the court? Is it the judges? It's not the court or the judges. It's an attorney, an insurance company, or an investigator generally is how that works. Okay, so they'll, yeah. they'll reach out and they'll have a certain need. And so it, I assume that you've worked both sides of the ledger for yes. the prosecutor or the defense? Not everyone, uh, every witness has, but uh, I'm about 50-50. Oh, you are about 50-50 I on am. that. And yes. 
any any interesting statistics on how often you are, as I guess, 50-50 on the outcomes either side in terms of the weather rule? Well, yes. And you know, what's interesting is generally if I go testify in a court case and let's say I'm for the plaintiffs, well, ironically, a month later, I'll get a call from the defense on a different case hiring me. So right. I figure that's, that's good. Right. One of the things I want to do, uh, tell us about, because I think as people are listening to this, they're going to want to follow you. They're going to want to sort of know as much about Dr. Austin as possible. Because just I mean, our, our, our listeners are very fascinated by this. So are you out there on social media anywhere? Can you give us sort of your Twitter accounts or anything? I know, I know you sure. have some out there. Tell us what, where people can follow you. Um, weather Extreme is the best, um, but I have done. And, and I think that's WX Extreme, right? I think it's how it's listed on the, in the Twitter, at WX Extreme, although it'll say Weather Extreme. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, because Weather Extreme is such a long word. Exactly. Yes. Right. Yes. And by the way, just a little weather geek tidbit here. WX is sort of shorthand for weather. I mean, people often ask me that when they would see weather geeks. And I think it has its origins in sort of the Morse code in the same way RX and pharmacy. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yes. And so, yeah, so that's yours. But then you have a personal. I uh, do. Dr. Elizabeth Austin. Right. CCM. So yes. make sure you follow, follow Dr. Austin and weather extreme, because when the show uh, Storm of Suspicion airs on October 7th, you're going to want to sort of follow her and see what's going on. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we are back on Weather Geeks. I'm talking with Dr. Elizabeth Austin, just just a fascinating guest and uh, looking forward to the show Storm of Suspicion. I want to now talk, get real weather geeky here. We're scientists. And I often say that the Weather Geeks podcast is a, a chance for the listeners to really eavesdrop on a conversation between two experts or two professionals. So talk us through some of the tools. Uh, you've mentioned some earlier in the podcast, but I mean, you mentioned things like radar and satellites, but what are your favorite tools? I mean, perhaps there isn't a favorite, you used all of them, but you know, you're, you're diving into a case. What's the first thing you start doing? I guess it depends on the case. Well, it does depend upon the case. And a lot of the cases are international. So whether you can get satellite radar, let, let's say it's in Africa, then we need to use a lot of the European data. If it's in China, it's a little more difficult, in fact, <clears throat> have to use... Is it because we don't have as much access to some of their data products? That's or? correct. Okay. That's correct. And actually, some of the countries, the data are quite expensive. Wow. You know, we're a little spoiled here in the United States, most of it. Most of it's available free. Well, we paid for it with taxes, <laughs> I guess. That's a good but point. Yes. yes. But uh, certainly, yes. I understand what you're saying. Sure. Yes. Yeah, so the data... Uh, well... First of all, the geography plays a role because wherever it occurred, then we have to dive in and try and obtain the data from from those various countries. Yes. And some are easier than others. But let's say it's in the United States. Well, that's great. We have so much data here. But ironically, uh, first of all, um, most crimes or accidents, incidents don't occur right next to a weather station. 
And then it always seems that the critical weather station maybe for that day was down. down. That's right. <laughs> so, That's yeah. right. Yeah. As that happens, I, mean, I noticed even with Hurricane Florence here recently, at one point the Wilmington radar was down <laughs> and the storm was sitting right over Wilmington. Exactly. So. Exactly. So there's always something like that going on. But yeah. we just try and gather everything we can get our hands on and then filter through you know, and then look at what data were real, what were not, what was working, what wasn't, and then right. go from there. Right. And, you you know, listening to your answer there, with these international cases, most of them, are they essentially the same types of things that you're dealing with in the United States? You know, accidents and I mean, are, are, are there a, an international flavor in any way to these that would be different from a U.S. case? Well, they're pretty much pretty the same. Much the same. Yeah. What about so you're using data from satellite radar? Uh, perhaps access accessing, and you even said you're running models at times. Yes. Are you doing any additional calculations beyond sort of the data that's provided by the weather services or by the uh, organizations? Do you have to go in and do any kinds of specialized calculations? Yes. You know, what, almost. What, ty- what types of things might that involve? You know, that's interesting. It might involve calculating for turbulence potential. Um, like I said, running the weather research and forecasting system model, let's say, to figure out let's say you have an in-flight breakup. Well, what happened to the aircraft? And so we really have to dive in and make calculations. Right. So, yeah. So it's it's not just that they're doing black box type analysis with data. (laughs) They actually, my point here is these are trained scientists that have to know how to think this problem through and approach it with the most appropriate data sets and methods. And that's what we as uh, scientists and that's what we learned as students learn to do. It's it's applying the scientific method. And so that sounds like what you do in your work. It is. I, I, would, I would find this fascinating. I mean, I'm going to go get my CCM because I'm really fascinated. Well, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, my day job is being a professor at University of Georgia, so I have various research projects. And so I get excited about because it sounds to me like that you're doing science. You're doing the scientific method just in an applied way. That's exactly right. And you know what's interesting is um, also as a forensic meteorologist, I don't work in a black box. I work with the other experts on specific cases, which can be quite interesting because a lot of times it's piecing together what happened. And so there's a metallurgist, there's, um, the, let's say it's an, a pilot, a airplane crash, a piloting expert. And so we all will sit in a room at times and present what we've each found and then discuss what we think actually happened. The, how the events, the sequence of events that occurred. So it's interesting. And and one of the things we like to talk about here on Weather Geeks is sort of the challenge of communicating weather. Uh, Because we're often talking, for example, with weather forecasts. Again, I'm using Florence because it's just recent in my mind. There were people that thought because it went from a Category 4 to a Category 2 storm, it wasn't going to be, quote, unquote, as bad. And they didn't necessarily understand it. The rainfall and flooding threat was the same. I'm curious about your experiences since you said you talked to all types of disciplines and professionals in your work. Um, do you have any strategies that you use in terms of communicating what can be very jargony information from our field? Have, are there any sort of lessons learned along the way in that arena? Yes. You know, that's that's a very important point because if the judge or jury doesn't get what you're saying, then it was a waste, exactly. basically. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so um, usually a few telltale graphics that aren't overdone but are accurate um, very nice graphics that will do the trick right and what, what about any story to, I, mean, I, I imagine oh, yes. storm of suspicion is going to tell stories it will and it so will I imagine storytelling is a very important part of what you do as well it is it is because the juries they, the jurors they want to know what happened and they want to 
understand it. And if they don't understand it, it won't make any sense. So they have to understand weather-wise what occurred and the timeline of events. Right. Yeah. So walk us through, again, either in your own personal experience or maybe we'll see it on the show, uh, What's what's the day like when you walk into a corridor the day before? Are you, are you preparing reports and getting your thoughts together? Um, or do you just kind of come? You, I mean, obviously, there's preparation, but that when you get on the stand or wherever you're, you're testifying or presenting your information, or do you just kind of let your expertise go to work? Well, that's interesting. It kind of runs the gamut. Um, usually... Not all states in the United States require an expert report prior to testimony, like California. Other states require reports very similar to the federal rules. So whether it's a federal court or a state court, um, there may or may not have been an expert report that I've prepared. But that's usually done well before trial. And then sometimes at trial, um, the attorney will just have me show up. We'll maybe have spoken on the phone for a very short period of time. Other times, I'll be there for a few days before, and they'll actually have other teams that they've hired to tell you all about the jurors, who's sitting where, who the foreman is. Oh, this juror, for example, is a fireman, and he'll understand the weather, so make sure if he nods. And if this juror goes to sleep, don't worry about it. <laughs> so, so, the, so there's really some coaching that's going oh, on. Oh, definitely. Yeah, that's interesting. And about the judge. They'll tell you about the judge. Like, for example, if he or she starts to lean back and do this, do that, you know, and so let Bo- you know if they're getting bored. Body cues. Wow. Yes. Um, so has there ever been a case where you had some sense that the judge or a juror was a weather geek and you sort of played on that? Or? Oh, definitely. Yeah. And they'll let you know that. And then also sometimes the judge will chime in and just ask all kinds of questions. Just be, They're yes. fascinated, yes. too. I can imagine on the other side of this ledger, though, since it's court and there's a lot at stake, I can imagine that there have been attempts by attorneys to discredit you in some ways or challenge you. Have you experienced any of that? I have. I have it, especially at the beginning of my career. Um, I think when one is first doing it, they're going to hammer you because as an expert witness, you're not a lay witness. You're there. You're there as an expert. So they're going to challenge you. It's almost like those of us have gone through graduate programs, defenses of our theses and dissertations. That's exactly right. You're held to a different standard. Yes. Yes. And so, but the longer I'm in it, I find the less that they try and discredit me. What are some ways that they try to do it? Is it just that they're just coming at you rapid fire? So I'll go, that can't be the case, or is it? Well, you, you know, usually in bigger cases, the other side has their own weather expert also. And we all know each other. And if... if oh, is that, okay, this is an interesting <laughs> element that I hadn't thought about, yes. but it certainly makes sense. So, yeah, you might not be the only weather expert in the room. That's true. And I've been on uh, some of the larger cases where there might be five or six weather experts, if you can believe it. But the judge will require each side to consolidate and choose one. And then that will be the one that represents them at court. Right. But the, so the other side has plenty of ammo, plenty of ammo. But we work in a world of data. And in court cases, it's often this, well, what, how someone remembered something or how a witness. We work with data. So if you come in and say at 455 during that traffic accident, the Doppler radar showed rainfall over that intersection. Yes. How does one, I mean, I, I, I guess what I'm trying to get at here is that when we work in a world of data, is it a matter of how perhaps you as an expert on one side of the case are interpreting the data versus how the expert on the other side is? Yes. And usually uh, it won't be an issue, something that you just suggested. It's, it's more, something more sort of fuzzy. Yes, exactly. I see. Yeah. Have you 
as we kind of move into sort of a climate world, are you dealing in any ways with any kind of climate or climate change related uh, cases in any way? Or Well, climate does play a role sometimes in the weather cases. Yes. For example, they may say, well, how many, let's say the, the cases in uh, you know Laramie, Wyoming, and then it has to do with maybe a severe snowstorm. Well, how many days does this generally occur? Well, so climatology will play a role in saying, okay, this many days over the past hundred years, this has occurred. Right. So, so, yeah. so yeah, so you're operating in both spaces quite yes. a bit. Yes. Now I want to sort of pivot this last few minutes of the podcast to get, get sort of, I mean, you're one of the world's experts and, you know, we have a range of people listening. Uh, talk to us about what you recommend as a professional. If someone's listening and they're really fascinated by what they're hearing, what do they need to do? How, I mean, if, if, if there's a young undergraduate student or some, how do they do what you do? What, 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 what's your advice? My advice is, first of all, colleagues and, and joining societies like the American Meteorological Society. The AMS has forensic meteorology um, seminars and workshops at their annual meetings. Um, not not every year, obviously. And, and and I should sort of interject to say that the next AMS meeting is in Phoenix, Arizona in January. Yes, that's right. That's right. And so dealing with colleagues and then looking at what it re- it's required to become a CCM down the road. And one doesn't have to just do forensic meteorology, to, you know, for a CCM. Um, but it's quite fascinating. But I think uh, also, a lot of uh, universities are now, they may not have a specific forensic meteorology course, but they may embed forensic meteorology in some of their coursework. Yeah, we've talked about doing that in our program at the University of Georgia as well. D- d- would you say that a bachelor's degree is sufficient and then go get the CCM, or do you recommend any graduate training? Or Well, to get your CCM with a bachelor's, you need five years post-bachelor's you know, bachelor's right. experience. Um, but... Uh, if you are going to be an expert witness, the more education you have, it, it is a little easier to deal with the other side trying to show that maybe you don't qualify in court. Um, but a bachelor's is just fine. Right. Now, obviously, I know one answer to this question, but what's next for Dr. Elizabeth Austin? Well, uh, <laughs> well, I'm first of all excited to see when Storm of Suspicion airs. Um, it would be great to have another season. It was a great series right. uh, of eight, actually. And, and, it, and it debuts, let me just make sure we debut Sunday, October 7th and 8th. So you're, it sounds like you're really excited about this and, and want to have another go at it. I, I would. It, it's, it, it was great. Yes, right. it was a great experience. Um, but just, uh, I love what I do. Every day I get up, it's different. Um, I never know what's on my plate, what's going to happen, um, what new case is going to come. Uh, like I said, Perland Project, we just set a new world record. So now the science, we've gathered all kinds of great data from the glider. Is there any place that someone can go and find more information on this project? Yes, if just on the Weather Extreme site, we have a link to the Perland Project. Okay. And there, there's everything uh, available. And we also have uh, all kinds of even just cool stuff like past videos from the tail cam. We have cameras that look inside wow. at the pilots. Uh, when we are flying, we have a virtual um, screen that shows the inside of the aircraft and the instruments and life support systems and everything. Uh, but we just finished flying for the season. 
that's that's really an interesting project. And hopefully you all will take a look at Storm of Suspicion uh, this October 7th. I'm sorry, October 7th, Sunday at 8 p.m. Uh, Dr. Austin, thank you for joining us on the show. I think your your podcast has re- uh, really illustrated sort of the unique ways that uh, atmospheric sciences touches kitchen table. Huh? <laughs> thank you, Dr. Shepard. Thank you. I am Dr. Marshall Shepard, and that's the Weather Geek Podcast. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro. Cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.